minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and Brand Disruptor at Vela 3D. On the show today, we have the founder and chief executive officer of Hermes, AJ Piplica. AJ is a leader, engineer, and entrepreneur in the aerospace industry. His vision for the future revolves around a global society with people connected in person, far beyond the digital community we have today. He joins me now to talk all about the latest developments in hypersonic technology and how advancements in additive manufacturing are revolutionizing what was thought to be possible. Please welcome AJ Piplica. Welcome, AJ. The first thing I want to talk about is like your inspiration and how your career path. Did you always know that you wanted to be an aerospace engineer or was there something that influenced and inspired you to go down that career path? Definitely didn't always know. I always kind of really clung on to two things as a kid. One was building things and, and the other is the future. So grew up building Legos and Kinects <laughs> uh, all the time, built a hovercraft in high school, I guess. And a lot, a lot of uh, RC airplanes, really liked building them better than I liked flying them, actually. And then on, on the future side, grew up with a lot of science fiction, Star Trek and Star mm-hmm. Wars. And, you know, that really kind of created in my mind a, a world where vehicles did a lot to connect people. And it, it took me a long time to actually realize that's what was going on. But looking back now, it was like blatantly clear. And there's there's definitely one kind of event that I think really kind of pushed me over the edge. And it was, uh, was going to an air show at, at McDill Air Force Base in, in Tampa when I was in middle school and, and seeing a, a C-5 Galaxy fly. Wow. So it's one of the largest cargo aircraft in, in the U.S. and essentially a, a building on its side with wings. And, and seeing that thing get off the ground and, and fly just kind of broke my brain as to like yeah. what should be possible. And, uh, you know, I think that that really kind of uh, was, was pretty formative in, uh, awesome. in you know, what career path I wanted to go down. And so while an undergraduate, you worked with the Aerothermal and Flight Dynamics Group Co-op at Jacobs Technology. And while you were there, you assisted with the Mars update for NASA's Object Reentry Survival Analysis Tool. Talk a little bit about that experience. What was it like for you and what you learned from it? Yeah, so I haven't I haven't been asked about ORSAT in a very long time. Yeah, that's 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 what they yeah. call it. But yeah, so I, I had an opportunity there when I, when I was co-oping at NASA Johnson Space Center with, with Jacobs to work on a number of different things. Uh, worked on the wing leading edge impact detection system for the mm. space shuttle that they installed after the Columbia accident, and and then eventually got to got into computational fluid dynamics, understanding kind of fluid flows around vehicles, specifically on, on vehicles re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. So aerodynamics and aerothermodynamics. And you know, that particular project was understanding how objects that are that are re-entering the atmosphere demise, uh, so burn up essentially, instead of so we have a lot of models that work well for Earth because we have a mm-hmm. lot of data there, not a whole lot of, of data going to Mars. Usually when we're going through the Martian atmosphere, we want to survive. So yeah, there's some update there on the kind of how carbon dioxide atmosphere of the, the Mars has is, is different. So but yeah, that, that was kind of very formative and, and kind of pushing me down the, the aerodynamics track mm-hmm. and aerodynamics and you really kind of centered me on hypersonics as something that was super interesting and I wanted to learn more about. I'm a, kind of an aerodynamicist who likes space and there's not much to do in a vacuum as an aerodynamicist other than rocket engines and reentry. And that's what really kind of 
brought the airplane side of what I loved as a kid and, uh, you know, moving people around alongside the actual kind of like hardcore engineering that I was doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, with aerodynamics and CFD. Hypersonics was the place where that all came together. And then you went to Spaceworks Enterprise. Was there, is there more there that you learned that led you to found Hermes? Because I think you also focus on hypersonic technology. Yeah. So, you know, that was a kind of uh, an internship experience turned into part-time during graduate school, almost full-time. Yeah. And, and then eventually uh-huh. my first full-time job. So you're essentially doing conceptual design for all sorts of aerospace systems. So I did a lot of kind of things that I had known and that I was good at in, in aero and aerothermal, but also kind of branched out into, into other areas, worked on electric propulsion systems in space, you know, transportation, things that are, that are quite different than, you know, what I was used to doing in, in school. But that experience really got me exposed to you know, working at a small company that did conceptual design for all sorts of customers, Air Force, NASA, commercial. You know, I got all these different opportunities to try a lot of different things and you work on projects that somebody who's a year or two out of school would never get the chance to work on at a, at a big company or, or an industry. So I got this really wide breadth of exposure um, mm-hmm. across the industry. And you really kept reinforcing the interest I had in, in working on hypersonics. Like the, the my favorite project that I ever worked on was a Mach 6 hypersonic aircraft for, for the Air Force. And yeah, so that, that kind of really solidified kind of technically where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But also it, it, I had an opportunity to build a company there as well. So Generation Orbit was a subsidiary of Spaceworks. So, you know, I had, uh, I, was, I was given the opportunity to essentially build that company you know, up uh, as the kind of the second iteration. And it was an entrepreneurial experience, so didn't have any equity, but essentially had all the managerial responsibility and uh, accountability associated with building a company. So it was a mm-hmm. kind of a, a safe way to give it a try. You know, I want to say there was a safety net there necessarily, because I still had to like, go get the business that was going to pay my pay- paycheck at the end of the day, as well as the people who were working there. But I hadn't put every ounce of savings into into this thing where like if it didn't work, then we're like going back in time here. You know, that, that came later. <laughs> but okay. it was it was an immensely formative experience where you know I was able to make a lot of mistakes in an environment where I could learn very quickly. And I also got to hire some some really fantastic people, uh, work with them for a long time. And that's that's where the you know eventually founding team of, of Hermius, the, the four co-founders, uh, that's where we all mm. got together. So I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so I guess you loved the entrepreneurial startup thing because you went and founded Hermius. <laughs> so I guess it was a good learning ground and good like training ground, like you mentioned. But also, oh, yeah. like, you, you talked you a learned bit to about... like the taste of glass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's fun. But you also talked about um, trial and error and making mistakes and breaking things. Like, talk a bit about that because I, on the show we've had a couple of engineers talking about like how important that is for their career development. And how, what does mm-hmm. that? What did that mean for you? And and also founding Hominius and maybe the comp- uh, the culture you're building. Yeah, sure. So so many things having it having almost a full kind of product lifecycle iteration on building a company with the same people. So you know, Glenn Skyler joined Generation Orbit in 2015. And, and Mike, mm-hmm. uh, who's our, our other co-founder, joined in 2017. So we had a lot of time basically building a company from the ground up together before mm-hmm. in hypersonics. So like very uh, kind of a, a niche thing that you really don't find very often. But also each of the three of them had, had worked in the new space world, SpaceX, Blue Origin. So you, they had experienced what could be done from an, a kind of an engineering cultural perspective. And getting to kind of try and implement that the first time at, at Go, like we got a lot wrong. Uh-huh. Like, you know, taking too long to let somebody go for the first time. That's like a really uh-huh. hard thing to do as like an engineer. You know, you're, you're, you have a different set of responsibilities now. 
I see that a lot at startups, actually. Like the, the first yeah. person that you let go, it's really hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so, it's, it's easy to hire the first. Well, it's not easy to hire. It's definitely <laughs> more like it's more like less emotionally taxing <laughs> to mm-hmm. hire the first person. Yes. And then, you know, to let the first person go. And, you know, when, when it came time for that at, at Hermius, I think uh, had we not had that experience together at Generation Orbit, I think we moved with the speed that was necessary at, at the time mm-hmm. uh, when, when it came time to make a hard decision and, and you know, we made it and, and moved forward and I think relatively well for, for everyone. So yeah, that, that was big. I think really understanding how much work you have to put into building the infrastructure of the company to support the engineering. I mean, we're four engineers building a company that it's like primary thing is engineering really awesome airplanes. Uh, so you think that like, well, we're just going to pour all, all of our resources into engineering. Well, if you do that, then the engineering team gets so big that the infrastructure to support it from IT to people operations to finance, all of these things, like all the tools don't exist and then everybody has to do everything and it's terrible. And you end up losing a lot of engineering time and bandwidth trying to solve problems that could very easily be solved by somebody who knows what they're doing. That was a big learning. Like, for example, I think the, the third or fourth hire that we made at Hermius was a technical recruiter. Because we knew how hard it was to hire, and and now it's it's of course even harder. But like that came from our experience at Generation Orbit. We had never brought in a recruiter before, so mm. I basically did it all. And the the growth rate that we're able to sustain there, we knew that wasn't sufficient for where we wanted to go at, at Hermes. So for like four engineers to decide to hire a technical recruiter within that like first group of people, is probably heresy. But we knew that it was something that we needed to do. Amazing. And also on that, they've invested a bit in marketing, like I, you know, from your website and <laughs> yep, from the stuff exactly. that you're doing for a startup and an engineering company. Can you maybe one sentence? What, why? Like, what was your thinking behind that? <laughs> oh, people have to know our story. Like, if people okay. don't know who we are, then uh-huh. nothing matters. And it's like, okay. I'm like a high functioning introvert. I'm like a very introverted uh-huh. person. So me, I'm like, uh-huh. I want to keep it a secret. We're going to be in stealth mode forever, and it's going to be great. And then you realize, like. Yeah, we're in stealth mode, but like we're not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos who can actually build a team and sell things in in stealth mode. So like we have to tell our story. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, uh, learning from Generation Orbit is something where is an area where we didn't invest nearly enough, and that made growing uh, both from a kind of a customer perspective and a recruiting perspective significantly harder than, okay. than it probably had to be. So yeah, that's another area where we started to invest up front really early at Hermes. Awesome, and, uh, I love it. Yeah, it's paying off. So the work you're doing at Hermes is groundbreaking, and I want to talk to you about the Mac 5 engine, the Camara. Tell us a little bit about the engine and what separates it from others in the industry today. Sure. So a couple things. Um, first off, it's it's designed to operate from not moving on the ground to five times the speed of sound at 90 to 100,000 feet. Uh, mm. So there's no engine today that can do that. There's no engine ever that's been able to do that. The closest is probably the J58 turbo ramjet from the SR-71s that flew up to about Mach 3.2, 3.3. So the kind of the, the key innovation here is, is how to develop an engine that can operate as a turbojet at low speed, quote unquote, low speed, uh, up to about <laughs> Mach 3, and then a ramjet above that without having to design a clean sheet turbojet engine, because that's like $10 billion in a decade. So that is the other key thing. And that's more of a business constraint than it is a technical constraint. And you know, the, the way that we ended up solving that challenge was to develop a, a pre-cooler that sits up in front of the turbojet engine that cools the air down. So at Mach 3, the air coming in is about 800 degrees Fahrenheit, goes through the pre-cooler. By the time it gets to the turbojet, it's about 150 degrees. And that happens in about a tenth of a second. So 
Wow. Um, that allows us to push the turbojet up to around Mach 3, where we can transition to a ramjet, and that can take us all the way up from, from Mach 3 to 5. So wow. it's called Chimera because it is a hybrid between a, you know, two different types of, of engines. And that's that's kind of the, the key innovation at, at, at the basis of, of really everything that we're doing on the, the aircraft side. Okay. And then you're working on a Mach 5 or more. So the hypersonic travel is generally defined as Mach 5 or more, correct? Generally, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, kind of okay. a it's kind of a gray zone. Um, uh-huh. You know, Mach four, Mach five is is kind of where okay. it starts. But yeah, certainly anything okay. that. So, for people like me and other listeners who might have a hard time wrapping their mind around this, what does mm-hmm. it mean for travel, for like crossing the Atlantic, or for me to get back to Sydney? Like, what does <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. So, from the east coast of the United States to the west coast of Europe will happen in about ninety minutes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, across the Pacific, so let's say like LA to Sydney, probably three and a half hours or so. Wow. I have never. Wow. I'd never have an excuse not to visit my family again. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) I'm not saying anything on air. (laughs) Okay. All right. Definitely. definitely Yeah. 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 On your website, you estimate that you would see the Mach 5 passenger aircraft from Hermes launch as early as 2029. However, much of your work now until now has been focused on the defense industry. What are some of the biggest challenges, if any, that you associate with making the transition from defense to commercial aviation? Sure. So uh, number one is actually making it through the defense side to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a, it's, it's a really tall order. There are, there are a very small number of venture-backed companies who have ever been successful in selling to the government at scale. Mm-hmm. SpaceX, mm-hmm. Palantir, Anderl starting to get there. That's probably the first challenge. And every single one of those three has had a billionaire founder. The four of us founders are not billionaires, so we have to do it the hard way, which means like, generating revenue at the same time that you're, that you're growing the company uh, and building products. So very difficult. So let's accept this truth that, yeah, we can get through mm-hmm. that. Some of the biggest challenges in, in transitioning from kind of the DOD world to the commercial world is the certification process. So the Department of Defense has their own process for certifying an aircraft as airworthy and you know safe enough to, to fly and operate. Uh, it's a very different world with the Federal Aviation Administration. So they kind of own all the certification for every aircraft that we fly on today. And the the bar for safety has been set incredibly high because of how just how much iteration has happened in the aviation world over the past you know, 60, 70 years. We've kind of ironed out and learned a lot about how aircraft work, how they fail, how to protect against those failures to the point now where flying on an aircraft is safer than driving in a car. Mm-hmm. Going from like zero to one on that is incredibly difficult. And that's why you don't see very many new aircraft manufacturers, let alone new aircraft coming online very often. Generally, just the certification process alone can take billions of dollars. And if, if you get a, too many things wrong, 10 years in and of itself. So how do you do that quickly enough on venture fundable timescales and at the scale of a company where you can keep kind of the company going and growing off of the DOD revenue without getting too big too fast? Kind of phasing all these things together is, is really the challenge. So why did you decide to start solving national security challenges before flying a single person? Why did you start with commercial before defense? <laughs> ah, because the Department of Defense generally will pay you for all that certification uh-huh. work. And, and also there are defense applications for hypersonic aircraft that are autonomous, significantly smaller than what we would need to build uh, to fly passengers. So Halcyon is, is the passenger aircraft that we have in our roadmap that carries about 20 passengers. It's a pretty large aircraft. It's between the size of a Gulfstream 650 and a Boeing 737. So mm-hmm. relatively large aircraft. 
And generally, development costs for aircraft are exponential with the size of the aircraft. So if you double the size of the aircraft, you're probably quadrupling or more the development cost. So for us, there's, there's a number of technical risks that have to be proven out. The engine is one. Thermal management, when you're at flying at high speeds for a long time, how do you balance and keep the internal elements of the aircraft cool enough? And then how do you develop a cabin that can keep passengers reliably you know, safe and, and comfortable for the duration of, of a flight and mm-hmm. do that for thousands and thousands and thousands of cycles? So that requires a lot of iteration. Mm-hmm. And the key to the kind of this whole vision for the future that we're trying to create, the key to it all working is solving those defense challenges up front as you're iterating on the technology. So I'll kind of make an analogy to, to SpaceX here. I just think it, it's, it's a pretty good one. So SpaceX's vision is to make humanity a multiplanetary species. They didn't jump right to Starship and, and try to do that because like, the amount of money and the amount of time, the amount of technical risk associated with doing that is, is completely untenable. They could never raise the amount of money to do that right off the bat. They had to, as they're incrementally de-risking the technology, build a rocket engine, build a rocket that can get to orbit build a rocket that can get to orbit with people and keep iterating and iterating each step along the way. They're solving really important challenges for customers. You know, they they essentially replace the space shuttle here in in the United States as the means of cargo and uh, and astronauts traveling to and from the space station. And they did that with an incremental technical de-risk on their long-term roadmap. So very much in the same way, we've kind of done that with the the roadmap that we're executing on here at Hermes. You know, we're not starting with with Halcyon, we're starting with Quarter Horse. So Mm. get up to Mach Mm -hmm. 5 and get back reliably. Okay, what can you do with that? Lots of flight testing, because you're bringing reusability to the game, you can do it probably an order of magnitude less expensively than anything that's out there today. And that's a very important problem to solve for for the DoD, uh, both here domestically in the US as well as amongst our allied partners. Okay, once you can get up there and get back, now demonstrate that you can cruise, you can stay at Mach 5 for an extended period of time. And that's what mm-hmm. Dark Horse focuses on. And that has its own set of defense applications, again, domestically and, and among our allied partners. And now you're de-risking this technology, but you're also de-risking the business. And again, this is like kind of weird for an engineer to say, but like the financial problems are harder than the technical ones here. And like the technical ones are really hard, <laughs> but the financial ones are, are even harder. And, and kind of phasing these things mm-hmm. together where you grow the business through multiple S-curves as you're de-risking the technology is kind of the only way that you could do it even as a billionaire, kind of uh, have to go through it this way. And we realized pretty early on after starting Hermes just how different SpaceX and Blue Origin were in, mm. in their approaches to kind of this exact problem. If SpaceX, all along the way, solve problems for customers, iterate, grow to the next step. You know, Blue Origin is just now, almost 20 years into the history of the company, starting to you know, generate revenue and, and solve problems for customers. They're two very different approaches, but I mean, it's also like, take a look at where two companies are today. And it's, it's kind of hard to, to argue that iteration, both in the technical and the business side is, is the way you have to do it. So you mentioned Dark Horse and a, a Chimera, the Chimera and a Halcyon. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So how do you come up with these names? I mean, oh. they're like... <laughs> there's, there's a very long uh, confluence page of all these crazy okay. names for... For things, yeah, <laughs> we okay. like we like the horse thing for a little while, yeah. uh, but we didn't want that to carry on all the way. Okay. Generally, we, we like our our names to mean something. I mean, mm-hmm. it goes goes all the way back to you know how we came up with with Hermes. So it's named after Hermes, who's the the Greek god of trade and travel and commerce. But we also wanted to remind ourselves that kind of two things. Like number one, we're connecting people, and that's why there's an us in our name. But also, everything we do as a company everything that our company is, is the people that are in it. So it always reminds mm-hmm. us to take care of our, our people. 
first. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of where the, the us in, in Hermes or Hermes comes from. And I love you know, it. quarter horse, you know, the fastest horse in a sprint. It also mm-hmm. ex, you know, was, was the horse that explored the American frontier. And we're certainly going after a frontier here. And Dark Horse is the horse that, that nobody expected to win the race. And we've got some pretty tall odds, both from like a technical perspective and then, you know, competing with big boys out there and, you know, the Lockheed Martins, Boeings, and North Grumman's of the world. So we're going to win. It's definitely going to be as, as a Dark Horse. And then Halcyon. I love it. <laughs> Halcyon is kind of, you know, uh, owns back to kind of a, a gilded age and just something that that kind of balances the the kind of grit and kind of luxury. It's kind of the, mm-hmm. the two elements that, that make up the brand of what we're building here. and. Yeah, just really pushes people to to think about the future. I love it. It's so creative and and with lots of meaning. And you also talked about your mission about connecting people. So your mission is to connect people beyond this digital world. Can you tell me what drove you to that as your mission and guiding light? You also talked about it earlier in the conversation. It's like you like to connect people. So mm-hmm. what is it about that and Hermes? Yeah. So when you kind of look back in history there, every time there's been an acceleration of a transportation network, it's always been accompanied by significant social and economic growth for the affected regions. So Rome built out their roads network for military purposes, but drove massive GDP growth and and social growth as they spread through all of Europe. When we switched from sail power to steam power and marine shipping, multiple single digit point GDP growth at a global scale, because that's what it affected. And, you know, when China built out high-speed rail in the 20th century, same type of thing within their country. When you look at global transportation, we haven't changed the speed at which we move around the planet in, since the 1950s. So actually, we've gotten slower, which is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. But you know that, that means that there is a latent potential to humanity and what can be done that can be unlocked if we can fly faster mm-hmm. at, at a price point that's, that's reasonable, kind of closes the business case for, for the operators to the point where you know, we, we've kind of done the math and then looked at what, what it means at a global scale, accelerating the world by 5x probably leads to about $4 trillion of new economic growth on an annual basis. And to put that in perspective, you know, that could pay for decarbonizing aviation eight times over in one year. So like the, the scale of impact that we're talking about here is astronomical. And mm. it's something that's not just kind of zero-sum game where you're pulling growth from one place to stick it in another. It's new. And we need those types of resources to solve the kind of ridiculous amounts of challenges that we have as a species going forward, whether it's climate change or um, anything else, really. And if we're able to contribute to unlocking that and what we're doing here at Hermes, then yeah, that'll be success. Looking forward, what do you think will be the difference between companies that ultimately succeed in this industry from those that will fail? Uh, I think it is the ones that get to revenue along the way are going to be the ones who succeed. The ones that kind of have an incremental technical roadmap that's solving problems at each step is, is kind of the ones that are, that are going to succeed. Yeah, I think the bridge from kind of starting up a company to an aircraft that's certified by the FAA that's generating revenue is an immensely difficult mountain to climb. And there are maybe a few ways to thread the needle through it, but I think the, you know, the likelihood of success there is, is really, really small. Whereas if you're able to, to solve problems for customers, bring in revenue that's scaling along the way, that can fund the back-end things that you want to do on the commercial side, you know, ahead of getting to FAA certification, that's the path to making this a reality. So we know by now that you worked in the aerospace industry for many years. So I would love to get your thoughts on how technology behind additive manufacturing has progressed in recent years and how has it impacted the work that you're doing at Hermes? It's a huge enabler. The first engine that we ever built 
we went through our, you know, our pitches for our seed rounds. Folks asked like, okay, like, what can you do with a couple million dollars? We're like, well, we can build a hypersonic engine and test it. And mm. like, okay, all right, we'll make a bet. Here we go. Go ahead. And we love to bet on ourselves here. <laughs> but the only way that we were able to do that was by leveraging additive manufacturing. So the first engine that we built demonstrated pre-cooled turbojet and, and a ramjet was about 85% additively manufactured. So something that we could not have done this way. And not because of necessarily the parts that we were able to make, but the, the rate at which we were able to iterate was pretty key. And, and now as, as we're scaling on to Chimera and Quarter Horse, scaling those capabilities up in, in a range of different application sets is hugely, hugely valuable. You know, obviously on the on the propulsion side of the house, it's big. The scale of the engines that we're working on now are, are relatively large. They're not a foot in diameter anymore. They're you know, closer to two feet. Yeah. Um, which now we're we're pushing the bounds of the build boxes and build volumes that the current technology on the AM side has available. And that said, though, we're still able to build things that you would not able to be not able to build otherwise, and, and able to iterate at a rate that isn't really possible otherwise. You know, also leveraging some large format additive capabilities that really go after less of a technical challenge and more of a business mm-hmm. challenge in supply chain. So for us, we're building an, an aircraft essentially out of titanium and, and inknel. And both of those metals are relatively expensive. They have pretty poor fly to buy ratios. So for every pound of titanium on the aircraft, you have to buy like 10 pounds of titanium and then you know, machine out of it. So if you can improve that, then you're improving obviously your, your cost structure, but also your supply chain. In that, you know, if you need preforms for ribs or stringers or spars, that can be multiple mill runs that you need to do. And when you're doing low rate R&D type type stuff, that's very, very expensive. And it's a massive supply chain to, to manage. If you're able to boil that supply chain down to powder or wire and build near net shape and the machine down from that, your fly to buy is, is great. And your supply chain is significantly simpler. And, and you know, anytime you're removing kind of layers in there of, of Cost is one thing, but really it's like, it's kind of like urgency. You have to align motivations to get people moving fast and the fewer external things that, that you have to kind of depend on, the more you can bet on yourself, the, the better. And, and additive is a huge enabler of that. How do you evaluate 3D metal printing providers and are there things on your non-negotiable list? Yeah, so I think for us, um, you know, it really depends on what the use cases are, whether it's R&D style things or production scale things have kind of very different requirements in terms of on one side, the, the material properties that, that come out, how well understood a, a process is, you know, relative to the speed at which a process can run and, and what kind of throughput you can get on a parts per unit time basis. I, I think in terms of non-negotiables, obviously the quality and the understanding of you mm. know, what we're going to get out of it. It's like we can't be necessarily developing manufacturing processes at, at the you know at the part level at the same time that we're developing an aircraft. Like we have to rely on things that are relatively well understood, repeatable, reliable, with that deliver properties that, that our engineers can design to. There's some places where where we'll stretch and, and try new things, but you know, those things kind of have to buy their way on and kind of harken back a little bit to the the scale of components that we're building. Obviously build volumes are important to us. The bigger we can get, generally the the better for most things. But uh, yeah, I think those are the those are the big things. And how do you see that technology evolving over like five or 10 years? Or how do you hope it evolves? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in each of those metrics, obviously, like the size that we're able to print at and the mm. speed that we're able to, to lay down material at, at high quality, those are probably the, the two metrics that are probably most attractive to us, you know, as, as we transition out of you know, the R&D world into the production world where we're doing things over and over and over again, the same thing. That's where that transition to speed is is really, really critical and in, in production volume. 
And then on the R and D side, you know, continuing to to kind of scale up, build volumes, and mm. prove what we can do there. Those are the yeah, definitely the big two metrics for us. A career like yours is a journey, and I imagine uh, people have impacted your career. What role, if any, has mentorship played in your career? Oh, huge! I mean, even going back to my time at SpaceWorks, being able to work under somebody who had who had built his own company was pretty strong guiding light uh, for for quite some time, and. You know, as, as time has gone on, I've gotten to, to meet and work with just an amazing set of people from all over the industry and, and all over the world. And there are folks that I've just, I've just learned so much from just by kind of sharing my problems <laughs> and kind of being open and, and a little vulnerable. You tend to learn the most when you're honest with yourself and, and sometimes mm-hmm. just doing, just having somebody to talk to about those things who, even if it haven't been there before, they can kind of extrapolate in their own minds and, and put themselves in, in your shoes and kind of try to take a few steps and give you that perspective from a side of, of the world that you're not always, you know, I mean, you know, as a, as a startup founder, you're, you're pretty much always heads down, coloring, getting done, everything that needs to get done. And sometimes just coming up for air, taking your head out of the sand and listening can be restorative, mm-hmm. but also kind of like aligning on where you need to go in the future. That's an area where I try to give back as much as I can. Um, like ah, awesome. There, there are experiences that, that I've had that are unique that the more people I can share those with and, and hopefully like encourage, say like, hey, this is something you can do. Don't be afraid. Uh, mm. Give it a try. Fail. Fall flat on your face because there will be people there next to you to pull you back up and you'll keep going. So yeah, being able to, to lean on those experiences and share them with other people, I think it's it's like kind of a requirement <laughs> yeah. um, as, as a startup founder to, to really pay that back. So on that, what are some of the important lessons you've learned in your career up until this point? Many, many, many. Okay. Most, most, of <laughs> from, yeah, most, most of them have come from, yeah, most of them have come from like doing something stupid and it failing terribly. But yeah, obviously like building out the the infrastructure for the company ahead of, you know, what the the engineering team needs is 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 critical. You know, starting a company with a group of people who you can literally trust your life to is I I don't know how you do it any other way. I mean, and it's not just the four of us founders who are involved in this. It's, it's our whole families have jumped on this plane with us and and frankly like they're the ones who we owe the most to cuz you know, mm. for us, of course, it's like, you know, this is something we love and the thing that we're in day to day, they have to go through the pains of, of all of this without much of the like day to day upside. You know, the, the payoff for, for them is even further down the road and that can be incredibly taxing. So I think really trusting in, in you know, those around us to take this journey with us. Um, yeah, so it's a huge, huge lesson. So one question I absolutely love asking all my guests is what advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> uh, I, I would I say reaction a lot. <laughs> yeah. So in, in college, uh, yeah, maybe not like play less hockey, but like go do more competitive engineering stuff. Okay. Um, that's, that's a piece of my college experience that now, like, I mean, I, I look for in every single person that, that we hire coming out of school is what type of competitive engineering work have you been able to do where, you know, you go from concept all the way through something moving in the real world. And I think that's something that I just didn't do enough of mm-hmm. when, uh, when I was a student. So yeah, yeah, that's that's the piece that I would stick on. I love how you knew that straight away. It was just like, yep, I know this answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, last question, last question. What about surprises and learnings? Is there anything you would have done differently besides being more competitive at college? <laughs> like in terms of like the, the business direction or a different yeah, choice everything, here or there? Anything, yeah, like what um, you've learned, decisions. Yeah, all right, I've got to think about this one. I think I would have pushed us to 
actually build more hardware than we have over the past couple of years. Um, I think we were okay. really good at that early on. And then you know, we went through this pretty significant scale up in, in, in the team and the amount of resources that we had and you know, spent a lot of time making sure that we're climbing the right mountain. And you know, I think that, that took away from a lot of the kind of iterative hardware development that we've done. And we're, we're back at it now, which, which is good. But I think we went through a period there where we could have done a lot better where I think we weren't really living up to the expectation that we've set for ourselves for, for kind of who we want to be and how we want to engineer. So yeah, that's, that's probably something that uh, we'll go back and, and make sure we did better. So AJ, we're at time and I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned so much and I'm so glad that we finally got to catch up and well online, but hopefully soon in person. Yeah, yeah, it was great. This is fun. Thanks so much. All right, thanks so much. Take care. A huge thanks to AJ for being on the show. It was so great seeing him and exploring the latest developments in hypersonic technology. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review or share the show with a friend. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do now so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Yusuf, and this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise. <laughs>